Well, here in Matthew chapter 5, it's as if all the introduction to Jesus has now come to an end, and we're now actually hearing what his manifesto is. Uh, you know, we've had the introduction about his birth, and then age 30, uh, he's, he goes into the ministry, he has the temptations in the wilderness, and he starts to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and people start to follow him, and of course they want to know, you know, what's all this about? And so verse 1 Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and they all had to come to him. Now, why does he do that? It seems to me that it's not that God plays hard to get, but in a sense, he is not there just for people who have a passing interest. A number of times, actually, in the Gospels, you see this, that Jesus goes up into a mountain or into somewhere relatively hard to get to, like the other side of of the lake, to where people were, uh, before he's actually seriously going to start giving mass meetings, as it were, teaching people in a a sort of a mass way. Now, I think what that shows is, is that it's not surprising, therefore, that people with only a superficial and passing interest in God and the Lord Jesus don't get it. And for all of us, as we read the Bible, if we're really going to get there to what really the Lord is telling us, it does require some effort from us of going up into the mountain, as it were. And those who have that attitude, that willingness to to sacrifice, to to get there, as it were, to, to the Word of God as it really is, It doesn't require any great uh, ability, it doesn't require any great intelligence, and it doesn't even require any great spiritual maturity, because people who have the right attitude to God's word can can latch onto it very, very quickly. Quicker maybe than people who have been baptized for many years and yet struggle to really accept what the Lord is telling them. So as I understand it, uh, and comparing this... um, with his uh, his general sort of uh, attitude, he's got all these multitudes and he goes up into a mountain. That's the end of chapter 4, he's got this theme of the multitudes. And I think Matthew has sort of set the scene and now we've sort of got our, uh, we're sort of sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for him to speak because this is the message. This is what this Jesus of Nazareth is really all about. And he starts telling them, but you'll notice uh, he sat down, verse 1. Now, it's generally commented that, yeah, you know, that's what happened when rabbis taught. They taught sitting down. But I query that. I query that. Uh, I don't doubt that rabbis did, uh, some rabbis did uh, teach sitting down, although there's evidence that some did teach in a more uh, standard way, standing up. Uh, reading the scriptures, it was normal to stand up when you read the scriptures and when you spoke about them. And you have an example within the Bible when uh, the, Lord, the Lord Jesus in the synagogue uh, stands up and reads. And normally that was the, uh, I think, the usual uh, posture, certainly in a synagogue setting. Now, if you were to walk in, and I, I did this once in our, our church in, in Riga, but about a good hundred people there, and I, I walked in, and I walked down the aisle, and uh, started giving my talk, but sitting down, and I mean, absolutely everyone was, was silent, you know, what are you doing sitting down, I could uh, see them all thinking that, why don't you stand up, and it made me think, you know, why does Jesus do this, why does he sit down, especially they were up the mountain, 
Now, I doubt there was any mountain in Israel where there was a nice flat plateau at the top, let alone with chairs for people to sit down on. So it would have been very rocky and craggy. And really, to project your voice so that people could hear, he really had to stand up. But he sits down. And I think this is, uh, I think, purposeful. For one thing, it was to get people to get as near to him as possible in order to understand his word. And I think that's a lesson in itself that uh, we can be Bible-centered but not Christ-centered. He wants people to be focused upon him as a person. But more to the point, any school teacher that walks into a classroom or really in any teaching situation, you do stand up. It's not just to project your voice. It's because you are there delivering something to people who don't know as much as you do. And there is a requirement within that relationship for a certain amount of respect towards you. And that's all part of standing up at the front and teaching the the group. But Jesus sits down, and I just love that, because, I mean, he really didn't come to start a religion. He came, as I see it, to present himself and to present the God that was manifest in him to others, to us. And he wasn't out to start a religion. He really doesn't really leave a load of sort of uh, uh, practical uh, advices or or commands about how to run churches and this kind of thing. He's just himself and presents himself without any uh, politics attached to him, just he himself. And I love that about him. And the spirit of those men walking around Galilee, listening to him, observing his behavior, his interaction with children, with women, with diseased people, with the mentally disturbed. This is our pattern. And I think that's how I see myself, and it's how I see really uh, the church of today, that we are a group of people focused on this man, that this group who walked around Galilee with him in the first century should really be replicated in us today. Well, if we have regular meeting places, etc., that is just a human convenience. But we are focused, focused upon him. So then we might expect him to start teaching about this wonderful future kingdom that is to to come, or to say, look here, if you do this, if you repent, and if you do this, that, and the other, then you will get this good time to come. But he doesn't actually talk like that. He talks to these people about a way of life, assuming that they will become believers. And really, that is the good news of the kingdom. It is about a reward, and it is about eternal life in the future. But it's not only about that. And in fact, the vast burden of the the teaching of Jesus about the good news of the kingdom, if you look at all his parables about that, it's the good news about a life lived now. And so his teaching is straight away about life, about how to live now. This is the good news. This is good news because it's a, a good new way of life, a kingdom way of life, here and now. You listen to what he says and do it, and it affects you right now. So then he starts off by saying, blessed are the poor. Now, that Greek word translated poor, it really means literally the crouchers, those who crouch down begging. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, these multitudes that came to him, and including the disciples, they were not all a bunch of uh, desperately poor street people. There may have been that element amongst them, I don't doubt, but they, they were not all in that desperate category. Far from it. I mean, the disciples had this fishing business. I didn't get the impression that they were desperate, not at all. And yet he talks about the poor in spirit. And uh, when he gives the sermon uh, on the plain in Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you poor, as if I know that all of you here are poor in spirit. And so he revealed the great paradox that the gospel is for the losers, for those who are down in this life. And they will receive all these other blessings uh, when the Lord Jesus returns. And so therefore we are blessed if we are like that. Now if you look at the second part of each of the verses, uh, 3 down to um, 11, it all seems to be uh, talking about the future kingdom on earth. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 1. Uh, right now that's now but then the, the other verses are in the future verse 4 they will be comforted 5 they will inherit the earth this is alluding to the promises to Abraham to inherit the earth the land forever verse, 30, uh, verse 6 they will be filled with righteousness verse 7 they will obtain mercy this is at the day of judgment verse 8 they will see God this is very much the day of judgment verse 9 they will be called the sons of God and then again, verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, your reward is great in heaven right now. So at the start and at the end of all these blessings, he's saying, this is what you've got right now. And so straight away you get this introduction uh, of the, the, the idea of now, but not now. That now, in a sense, we have all these things. Ours is now the kingdom of heaven. We have a great reward with God right now. And yet, that, that's the first blessing, the last blessing, but the blessings in between are talking about the future nature of this kingdom of God. And so, insofar as we live this life that he outlines here, poor in spirit, weeping, meek or humble, hungering and thirsting for righteousness that is not righteous yet but we desperately want to be that way, merciful, pure-minded, peacemakers, persecuted, uh, reviled by others. We, insofar as we live that life, we have God's kingdom right now, in that sense. Although, of course, as he brings out here, it's also future. We will inherit the earth, we will see God, etc. So then, now you can go through the first part of uh, all these uh, Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? Are you a croucher? You might think, well, no, I'm not. I ain't got enough money to buy food this week and next week and the week after. But are you, in your heart and spirit, do you feel like some great king or queen stomping and strutting around the world? I don't think so. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you mourn? Are you meek or cut short? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you so wish to see righteousness in your own life and in the world and the lives of others? Are you merciful? Are you pure-minded? Do you try to make peace or do you love stirring up trouble? Are you 
persecuted for the sake of what you believe? Are you misunderstood? Are you slandered? This is, I'm going through verse 11 and 12. You have people against you because of the fact that you have stuck up for, for the principles of Jesus? You know, all those things, apart from the pure in heart, that, that's a very big challenge uh, to me, I guess to all of us, all those other things I, I, I can say yes to. I, I really can, and I believe that you can as well. And so we have the huge encouragement right away that ours, therefore, is God's kingdom. And yes, we are still going to get it in the future, inherit the earth in the future, we'll see God, etc. But it is ours now. And it's almost too good news. Uh, and you know, he stands up and says that as the opening manifesto of what he really has to say. That if you are in those categories, you are going to have the kingdom and you have it right now. It's not all, you know, jam tomorrow. Now, in verse uh, 6 there, <clears throat> he, he talks about the blessed uh, are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You might like to just put a circle around the word blessed and write there Luke 1.48, and the word hunger, and put Luke 1.53, and then filled, and you can put Luke 1.53 again. Because, you know, Jesus is quoting here from the words of his mother Mary, where she talks about herself as blessed, and she talks about herself as the hungry who has been filled with good things. And I understand that to be one of a number of indications that she had the spiritual ambition to be the mother of Messiah. And she felt when she was made pregnant that she had been filled. And I think that must be the case because otherwise if you're just some young, young girl who's engaged to get married to your boyfriend and suddenly zap, you're told, hey, you're pregnant. But not by anybody, just by, uh, well, by, by the power of God. Yeah, your first reaction would be, oh no. And as you thought about it, you'd burst into tears and be very angry and say, why you do that to me, God? But she doesn't. She rejoices and says, thanks, you filled me. You filled my hunger. Now to me, that means she's saying, thank you, you heard my prayer. So, there's a number of things come out of this. One... Jesus may have been consciously alluding to his mother there, or he may have been unconsciously alluding to her. Who we are as personalities is the sum result, in a sense, of all the different influences we've had upon us, particularly, I guess, of early childhood. And that was even true for the Lord Jesus, even though, of course, he was so open to the influence of his Father, his Heavenly Father. So my point is that the influence we have upon others can even be eternal. Because Mary was illiterate, it seems to me, and she would have gone around the house singing her song that she composed, which is recorded there in Luke 1. She would have gone around the house singing the song, and Jesus would have remembered it, because he kept me and his mum singing it and humming it. And so he had those words very much in his consciousness, and he had come to see, I guess, that everyone who really hungers and thirsts for righteousness is in a sense following the pattern of Mary and so really and truly we, 
we have there a, a great challenge, that we have a huge effect upon people far bigger than we might imagine. And that's particularly true about our children. Now, we don't want to get off topic here, but uh, what's interesting is if you go through the words of Jesus in his heavenly glory that he spoke after his resurrection whilst on earth and uh, in his heavenly glory when he wrote to the uh, ecclesias in Revelation. And you will find the same sort of thing there. Allusions back to the words of his mother Mary. So even for eternity, Jesus is reflecting the sort of influence that his mother had upon him in babyhood. And if our kids and those that we mix with in this life are going to be in God's kingdom, they will to some extent be reflecting our influence upon them. Not just with children. New converts or people that that we we mix with and have an influence upon. And believe me, we have an influence. And that, that goes on to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now, it cannot be that we have no influence upon other people. It just can't be. Now, salt inevitably affects, by reason of what it is, whatever is next to us. And so it cannot be that if we really believe that we are going to live forever in God's kingdom, it can't be that we have no influence upon other people. By the way, salt uh, has the characteristic of creating thirst. So I think in that sense, by people's contact with us, they may not get all the answers to their questions from us. There's failures in our behaviour, there are gaps in our knowledge in, in that sense, but their contact with us should cre- should result in, in those questions being created and for them thirsting for basically righteousness as we have there in verse, verse 6 now if we are real believers it seems to me that you cannot possibly not be noticed this is why at times the question has been raised by people in a Muslim environment can I get secretly baptised and not tell anybody and just appear to be a Muslim um, because if I tell them I've converted to Christianity I could be killed and this is my answer that if you really are converted to Jesus you can't hide it you can try your best but you won't be able to hide it it will come out he doesn't say so much as uh, sort of do good works so that people will see your salt or see your light or go preaching on the, on the street so that they, they see that you're the light. He just says, let your light shine. Be the salt of the earth. Just be <clears throat> who you are. Because we have been lit, verse 15. <clears throat> uh, we are lit as a candle is lit. You are the light of the world, verse 14. And a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. And of course Jesus says in John that he personally is the light of the world. If we're really converted to him, all that is true of him becomes true of us. As he's the seed of Abraham, so are we. As he is the light of the world, so are we. Now, if we are the the candle that's been lit, you don't put it under a bucket. If you do put it under a bucket, what happens? The light goes out. And so, I think that if we hide who we are, in this world 
it actually damages us personally, it damages our faith, and in fact our light goes out. We lose it. We lose our own burning. You can't say, well, I burn my little candle in, in the uh, online world of my, my little life in my apartment, in my four walls. Actually, no. Because if nobody outside your four walls knows of your light, actually your light will go out. So this is where witness uh, is actually for our benefit. You know, God could save people as he wa- wishes, how he wishes, when he wishes. But he chooses, it seems to me, to work through the mechanism of our preaching. And if we try to cover up that light, it's going to go out. Now, thinking this thing through, because Jesus engineered these, uh, these sayings very carefully, why would you put a light under a bucket? It's because you think the wind's blowing, and if I don't put that bucket over that candle, the light's going to go out. And so many times this has been the problem. Suddenly in, in our community, and in, in many, uh, it seems to me, it, over the years, in, in many communities of those who have been lit uh, by the Lord Jesus to shine his light, there's a fear. There's a fear that the wind might blow the light out. Quick, quick, let's put a, let's put a bucket over it. In other words, an obsession with trying to preserve the faith can actually lead to the faith going out. And that is what's happened so many times, in so many individual lives, in so many communities. Whereas Jesus is teaching something far more natural. Look, just be natural. Be salt. Be a light. You're the light of the world. That's my intention. I lit you. I lit your candle to burn now don't worry it's not going to blow out and you're not going to save yourself from blowing out by putting yourself underneath a bucket then for sure for sure it will go out so to just recognize that part of our calling is to be him in this world not to be paranoid about oh the, the light might go out or whatever don't think about that focus instead on giving that light to other people And of course this is what was so true about Jesus and all these (coughs) descriptions of of what he wants from us, poured in spirit, verse 3, the mourners, the meek, thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, etc., persecuted for righteousness' sake, reviled, etc. All those descriptions are true above all of Jesus, of Jesus personally, and the sword of the earth, and the light of the world is, of course, supremely Jesus. So I think, in a sense, what he's asking us to do is to focus on him and to seek to be like him. And that is why, as I say, in my opinion, he sits down. He doesn't, you know, have a PA system. He doesn't have a series of runners to go and and relay his words to the people sitting in those craggy rocks. He's like, get close to me. I'm sitting down. I'm not standing up to try to be uh, some great leader amongst you and just here to have a talk with you guys he was right on their level Uh, and of course um, when he says verse 17 I have not come to destroy the law of the prophets I came not to destroy but to fulfill that was done through in Galatians 5 verse 14 through loving his neighbour as himself 
that that fulfilment of the law <clears throat> was ultimately in, in the cross in the sense that the cross was the final, the finality of loving your neighbour as yourself. And that really is the summation of all that is here in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, just a, a couple of quick, uh, quick points, just a few highlights from the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> Verse 19. Whoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach others so shall be called the least in the kingdom. Now, Matthew 11 verse 11 says that the least in the kingdom will be counted greater than John the Baptist was in this life. So then, least in the kingdom is a phrase Jesus elsewhere uses about those who will actually be in God's kingdom. Now, I think what he's saying then is that there will be people in his kingdom who have actually broken some commandments and taught others so they were absolutely convinced that they were right when actually they were wrong and yet they will still be in God's kingdom now take that which way you will but I think it encourages us to patience when we see the failures of others both to understand and to do what what God's word says verse uh, 22 Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. The idea of the Greek there is vainly, for no reason. And I think he may be saying that anger which doesn't achieve anything positive is wrong. It's not that anger in itself is wrong, because it's part of uh, the structure of our personality and and, uh, humanity. And it's a reflection of God in whose image we are made, because he has anger. But his anger is creative. The anger, the wrath of God, is in a sense the love of God in a strange sort of way, and that all his judgments, his condemnation of people, turns out good in the end for the salvation of some. Verse 22, Whoever shall say to his brother, or about his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Of, of condemnation basically now rachach it's a very guttural sound but what was the sound made when a man cleared his throat to spit and normally you did not say that in front of your brother you said it about him when the guy's name came up who you didn't like you just said rachach like you, like you were going to spit when someone's name comes up, even in a Middle Eastern Semitic kind of culture today, that can happen. If someone's name comes up, you make that guttural sound in, in the back of your throat, and you may even actually spit. Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to be burnt up in hellfire. I mean, it's symbolic, but I mean, what he means is you're going to be condemned at the last day, and you're going to suffer for that. So, to despise your brother to spit as it were on your brother this is the sort of thing that leads people to be condemned according to Jesus at the last day and in a sense it's sort of there's a juxtaposition of ideas here there's what in the eyes of men might be nothing to just say uh, yeah someone's name came up and yeah just sort of make that despising sort of sound in the back of your throat and then Jesus comes back centuries later millennia later and you for doing that you get chucked into into fire and you're, you're condemned and you, you suffer terribly all because you just said 
just because you made a sound at the back of your throat when someone's name came up. Yes. This is how serious it is to speak badly and to feel badly about our brother even when we are not with him. And, uh, you know, the parallel is to call your brother a fool, and it's the Greek word more, a moron. Um, but I think more implying a kind of a rebel, an apostate. Uh, that sort of person, if he's your brother and you talk like that about him, you're liable to eternal condemnation. Now, <clears throat> our attitude to our brethren is therefore absolutely crucial. And don't forget, this is the opening gambit of Jesus. This is the opening statement from Jesus about the gospel of the kingdom. We're still early on in the manifesto of his kingdom. And he's saying, if you despise your brother, and if you just say, ah, yeah, he's a heretic, he's a moron, he's this, he's that, uh, I think that's how the idea of more was, uh, was understood by them, uh, you're not going to be in my kingdom, and you're going to suffer terribly for it. So reconciliation with one's brother was absolutely of paramount importance. <clears throat> Not refusing to answer letters or being difficult and saying, look, if he comes here, I'm out of here, or this, that, the other's going to happen. This sort of behavior, which has become very uh, popular and thought of as being sound in the truth or sound in the faith, this is the very behavior that will lead people to be thrown out of God's kingdom. And so he says, verse 23, if therefore you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, then run off and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, it's easy to misread that as him saying, if when you're offering your gift you remember that you have got something against your brother, then you run off and sort it out. But he actually puts it the other way. He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, that is quite challenging. We may say, yeah, you know, I don't have anything against anyone. I, I've forgiven the people who've done me wrong. I've made my peace with God, and, and that's it. And I, I, in my own heart, I, I don't feel anything bad against those people who've done me wrong. And we've all got those people in our lives who've done us wrong. And you might think some people have a charmed life. And I used to think that and that life is just very smooth and boring for them. But, you know, it's not like that. You'd be amazed at what people uh, suffer and have suffered and gone through and go through every sad day of their lives at the hands of other people. So you see what I'm saying? That he doesn't say, if you remember that you've got something against your brother. He says, if you remember that your brother has got something against you. Now, that means that we have got to be proactive proactive in sorting these issues out. And we must do this. He says, verse 25, that we are, as it were, on our way to judgment. And on the way to judgment, we must sort ourselves out quickly and urgently. So there is an urgency to sort ourselves out. Uh, we're living life in that sense on a knife edge because we are walking quickly towards judgment towards the day of judgment. And therefore, in that sense, if you are walking there with uh, your adversary, with your brother who is against you, you must get right. Make a deal. Okay. Yeah, if it's an argument about property or whatever, like Jesus is saying, look, you just, 
you be the loser. Okay, he makes these terms or whatever. He wants this or that or the other out of you. Okay, look, for goodness sake, get it straight because you're on the way to judgment and do it quickly. There is an urgency in all this. Then he says, uh, just maybe we have time for... Well, actually, I, I don't think we, uh, we do have time. We, we shot all over our time. Uh, sorry for rambling this time. One could just go, go on and on. Um, maybe just one final thing that I would like to say, carrying on from this theme about uh, um, reconciling with our, with our brother. Uh, verse uh, 39, whoever smites you on the one cheek, turn to him the other. Verse 40, if he wants to take away your outer garment, then offer him your uh, undergarment as well. If he makes you carry his goods uh, one mile, well, offer to go too. Now, in all those things, I don't think he means it literally. When Jesus was struck on the, on the cheek himself, he didn't literally offer the other one at his trial. But I think what he's saying is, by, as it were, uh, offering that, you disarm the person who has abused you. So, typically, men in those days had, like, two coats and uh, or two garments, uh, the outer garment and the undergarment. And underneath the undergarment, there was nothing. You were in the nutty. So, if somebody takes away your outer garment, would you say, hey, you want to take my uh, undergarment as well? You really want me to walk home naked? No, they're going to say no. If you, if you literally offer another cheek, the other cheek, it's probably not going to hit that. And it was Roman soldiers who could compel people to carry their pack for a mile, in verse 41. But apparently, according to Josephus, if they uh, abused that and made people uh, carry their goods for two miles, uh, they, they could be stripped of their, uh, uh, their, their place in the army and be seriously punished. So if they made someone carry their goods for their pack for one mile, and the guy says... And would you like me to carry it another mile, sir? He's gonna get, the soldier's going to say, uh, no. Uh, no. Your abuser is disarmed. This is the, you know, passive non-resistance to evil, which is in fact resistance to the evil. Not by sword, uh, but by grace. And I, I think we should take that, uh, take that with us, uh, because um, you notice how much of what Jesus is saying here is about relationships. You could argue it's all about relationships, because that, in the end, is the essence of the life that is in Christ.